our city, how much we love our city. So I encourage you to sign up for that. All right, so the first passage we're going to look at this morning is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And we just started a new series last week called Heal. And the big question we're wrestling with with this series is, how do we heal from sin and from being sinned against? Basically, the point of the series is to answer the question, how does Jesus change us? In my time uh, here at TBC, and also even before I came to TBC, um, I would often hear stories of, of people in their situations, just hearing stories of, of guys or girls in their home situation. It could be mom and, got, mom and dad got divorced. It could be mom and dad were never part of their lives. We live with grandmother, grandfather, um, just some various situations where there's been a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And what I notice in, in that type of kid, there's typically a lot of pain, so there's also a lot of mistrust. There's also just a lot of, of, of questions about, well, how can a good God let this happen to me in my life? How can God be good? And what you'll see with someone who's gone through those kinds of things is this um, trajectory of their life where they will typically, not always, but typically, um, start to reject the ideas of Christianity um, and those kinds of things because they, they didn't see it at home and, and they really felt like, how can God be a good God and allow what happened to me to happen to me? And it's a legitimate question. But what I always will eventually say to that kind of student is I try to point them to this idea that, okay, let's just break this down. You know, your, your mom or your daddy or your grandfather, or your grandmother, whoever it was that really hurt you, um, the reason why those things happened was because somebody wasn't living in line with the gospel. Somebody wasn't following Jesus. They may have said they were, but then still treated you this way. But somebody wasn't following Jesus. So, so my question to them is always going to be, you know, I don't want you to take someone else's sin and their rejection of Jesus and use it as an excuse for your own sin and for your own rejection of Jesus. We see how the pattern just continues, right? That, that even though things happen to them, and they say, well, how can God let this happen to me? God can't be good. Then they begin to reject that same God and begin to have the same patterns in their own lives that were done to them. And so the question I want you to be wrestling with as we talk through this series is, how do we heal from sin ourselves, but also heal from being sinned against? How do we heal from sin? How do we heal from being sinned against? And so um, I want you to look this morning at, um, at Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where, where Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so last week we discussed the problem of sin. That was a setup last week. Today we're looking at the remedy of that problem. So last week we looked at the problem of sin, and I want you to see here, in, in verse 23 of Romans 6, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So what is a wage? A wage is something that you are owed. So if you go work at Sonic, wherever your job is, they pay you X amount per hour. What is minimum wage right now? Is it like seven, twenty-five, eight bucks? Okay, do you know, when I was your age, do you know what it was? You want to hear what it was? It was four twenty-five when I was your age, all right? So that shows you how old I am. So a wage is something that you are owed. You work for it, and someone owes it to you. And I love this verse because it really shows us clearly that because of sin, because of our sin, 
We are owed death. God, God owes us death. Like, it's not just because he wants, it's like we're actually owed that. We're owed death by God. You know, recently, um, about a month ago, my sister-in-law, who's very close to us, she, um, she lost her father-in-law, or she lost her father. So my sister-in-law lost her father. And in a tragic accident, he was 52 years old. He just went under the house to um, get some chicken wire cut out from under the insulation. It's an old farmhouse down in Brenham. And, um, and some rats had apparently chewed through some wiring under the house. He didn't know this. And so that chicken wire was all electrocuted, right? It was all hot. And he's laying on the ground, and he's cutting this stuff out, and he touched it, and he was instantly killed, instantly. And so we're in New York City on the mission trip. The, the day we fly in is the day we get this news that my sister-in-law just lost her father, who we had just seen a month before that at a party, a really godly man. He left behind three wonderful daughters, a wife who's grieving, five beautiful grandkids who were all five years old and under. I mean, just a tragic, tragic situation. This happens a month and a half ago. Um, we have other friends. We have a friend who, um, her, her daughter is ill with leukemia. I mean, we're, we're constantly getting bombarded recently with these stories of death and disease. And I'll admit to you, in the last month or so, month and a half, I have felt a little bit like in a little bit of a depression, just thinking about these families and how they're grieving and worried, of course, it's going to happen to me at some point or someone I love. But you know what God has kind of done as I think about things like death, is just a reminder that, I don't mean this to sound callous, and I would never say this at a funeral in this way, but because of my sin, I'm, I'm owed that. Because of my sin, I'm owed death. And whenever you and I have the problem of thinking, well, God, how can you just take someone? How can you, how can you just, how can someone just die like that so suddenly? It, it sort of grounds me to remember that, that that's what I'm owed. Like, I'm, I'm owed that by God. And, and before we just stop there and let that, that depressing thought think in, sink in, I need you to let, let you see the rest of this verse. Because if you and I don't understand that death is something that we are owed, it is a wage that we are owed, then you're always going to look at death in this, you know, how could you God kind of way. You're going to shake your fist at God when things happen to you like that because you don't realize that the wages of sin is death. And again, I would never say it that way at a funeral. It's not the time or the place. But when you're thinking about these kinds of thoughts, it is proper for us to think about that we are owed this because of our sin. In fact, it's, it's not just physical death that you and I are owed because of our sin, we're actually owed something even worse. And it's eternal death. It's eternal separation from God. That's the real depressing thought. So it's not just physical death that we're owed. We're actually owed eternal spiritual separation from God, eternal death. That's what God really owes us. But look at the rest of this passage. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how is a gift different than a wage? I want you to understand this. This is important because a gift 
is something that's given to you freely. A wage is something that you are that you earn, something that you are owed. A gift is given to you freely. It's a gift. And so there's a difference here. And here's why it's important to understand salvation as a gift and not something to be earned. You know, I hear people say all the time things like, um, I've, I've heard this phrase a lot being here in Texas, and it's something like this. Yeah, I've always been a Christian, but then I fell away for a while, and now I'm trying to get back on track. And it's something like that that I've heard from lots of people, especially in this part of the country. Now, that might sound innocent, but first of all, I'll say that no one has always been a Christian. That's impossible. No one has always been a Christian. You are not born into the faith because your parents or grandparents were Christians. But when people say this kind of thing, what they usually mean is something like, okay, I grew up going to church. I tried to be a good person. I tried to follow the rules. But then I grew tired of that game. And then I decided to explore sin. I did that for a while. But now I'm feeling a little guilty about that. And so now I'm attending church again, attempting to be good again, and I'm trying to get my life back on track. And on the one hand, that can seem like an innocent statement, but with this kind of person, there's no acknowledgement of being dead in our sins. There's no acknowledgement of I'm owed death because of my sin towards God. There's no acknowledgement of needing to be made alive in Jesus. There's no acknowledgement of salvation being a gift that's given to me freely. This is nothing more than just trying to save ourselves. It's a, it's a veiled, works-based salvation. A guy named uh, Tim Keller, he says this. He says, before the gospel hits the heart, it is possible to have a merely intellectual or behavioral Christianity in which Christian ethical principles are followed superficially. This is what I see, I think, around us especially, and this is hugely important because um, where you and I live, this kind of thing, I think, runs rampant where we live. And so if, unless you and I understand the problem that because of our sin, God owes us death, physical and spiritual, then you and I cannot embrace the remedy, which is Jesus and the gospel. And if we don't understand the free gift nature of salvation, then we're going to spend our lives trying to work for it. You will spend your life trying to work for something that you cannot earn, your salvation and your relationship with God. If you don't understand that it is a gift, it is a free gift from him. I want you guys to go ahead and discuss your first uh, three questions at your tables. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn now to John chapter 3, verse 16. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. This is probably the most famous verse in the whole New Testament but I want you to turn there, just in case you don't have it memorized. So I don't think I've ever done any talk on this passage because I thought, well, they already know this passage. They know it so well 
that um, then I began thinking about that, and I thought, you know, sometimes the, the familiar passages actually become unfamiliar to us because we think we know it so well, and yet we don't really truly understand what the passage is saying. So look at John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, if I were to tell you that God loves the world, if I were to go on the street and do a street survey and say, hey, did you know that God loves the world? Most would probably say, yeah, of course he does. So tell me something I don't already know. But for, I want you to hear this. For, for a Jew, for someone reading this passage, for a Jew back in that day, this was astounding news. This sounded crazy to a Jewish person in that part of the world because for the Jew, the Old Testament talked about God loving the Jews, them being his chosen people. But those who were not Jews, Gentiles, that was foreign to them. The fact that God loves, wait, God loves the world, not just us as a nation. Are, are you telling me that Am I hearing that correctly? God loves the world? And so we would say in our culture, yeah, of course, everyone knows that God loves the world. But in that culture, in that day and age, this would be astounding news to someone in that part of the world. Now, when you and I think of the world, we think of the actual globe. We think of the world in its bigness, right? There's a guy named, that I've read before named D.A. Carson. He's a really thought-provoking guy. He actually says that in the book of John, whenever the word world is used, it's not just talking about the world in its bigness, but it's talking about the world in its badness, like the world. So it's not just the people out there. It's like all the wickedness and evil that you and I can think of and imagine. That's what it means when it says God loves the world. Now wrap your mind around that for a minute. There's a lot of wickedness because of television. We see a lot of wickedness firsthand, at least through the television, right? We don't just, we actually see it. We don't hear about it. We actually see it playing out in parts of the world and even here where we live today. And so last week we talked about everything being broken because of sin and so the world here refers to that brokenness we discussed last week. And so think of, think of the worst evil and brokenness that you and I can imagine. And this verse says that God loves them. So let's just fill in the blank there. This would mean um, whatever category of sin and evil that you see as the worst of all evil, let's fill in some blanks here. This would be... This would be um, uh, murderers, rapists, pedophiles, abusers, prostitutes, right? Now, you might say to yourself, but, but how can God love someone like that? Like, we all have that category in our mind of, like, what are the unpardonable sins, which there really are none of those. We always think that there are, though. And so our minds go there, but you might ask yourself, how can God love people like that? How can he just overlook that kind of evil? How can the Bible say God loves even that kind of person? 
But I want you to hear this morning that when the Bible says that God loves the world, even in its worst evil, in its total and complete depravity, it's not just that God glosses over sin. So if your question this morning is, how can God just gloss over that kind of wickedness? How can he just treat sin that way? God doesn't gloss over sin. He, he does the exact opposite. In fact, he takes it so seriously that he takes it upon himself. He takes sin so seriously that he puts it on his own body when he went to the cross. So, so the cross is not an example of God glossing over sin and God taking sin lightly. The cross is an example and a display of how serious God really does take sin. On the other end of the spectrum, someone might say, well, how can a good God, how can a good God just forgive all these wicked acts? But the cross shows how serious he takes it. Or some might, some might say, well, why couldn't God just forgive? Why did the death of Jesus have to happen? Why can't God just forgive and say, okay, you're forgiven. Put your faith and trust in me, who's a good God, and I will just forgive you for your sin. Why does Jesus have to come and die? We see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the answer to that question is, why did Jesus have to die? It was for this, because... God is just, and someone had to take his wrath for us. God's just, someone has to take on the justice and the wrath of God because of our sin. A man named John Piper, he says it this way. I want you to follow this. This is a, a real powerful statement. He says, if God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there'd be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. And so if someone asks you the question, okay, why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive and be done with it? And the answer is because God is both loving, but he's also just. And you see, the cross is where God's love and his justice meet. He's just so he can't just turn his back on sin, but he's also loving so he puts himself on a cross for us. The cross is where God's love and his justice meet. So when John 3.16 says that God loved the world, most of us think of the sin out there. Like, yeah, God... God loves the world and its badness, the people out there that are really wicked and evil. But I want to let you hear this morning, let's talk about us. Let's talk about our sin. What, what are you steeped in shame about? What is in the back of your mind, something you did a while back or even recently, that you just think it, it just harps on you, um, even though you're a Christian, you still walk in shame over it, and you're still, ste you're still steeped in shame about it. And so this verse, God loves the world, don't just think of it like it's, it's the people out there, it's, it's distant from us, because what this verse really means, he doesn't just love the world, he loves you. He loves you. 
And whatever you feel like you have done that is too bad for him to forgive, the cross says that anything we do, that it cannot separate us from him as long as we put our faith and trust in him and his finished work for you on the cross. John 3.16 says, God loves you. God loves you. Some of you in the room, you don't really believe that. There's something that's still off. You're not fully embracing the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. You're not fully embracing the gospel because you, you cannot understand how God can love you. You don't see how this verse can be true for you. I think when it comes to God's love, um, there are two traps that we tend to fall into. Um, the first trap is thinking God can't love you because you're too bad. The second trap we fall into is thinking God owes you his love because you're not that bad. But I want you to see this morning how both of those ideas, which sound like they're the opposite, thinking I'm too bad, how can God love me, or thinking I'm not that bad, so God must love me, both of those traps we fall into are based on a works-based salvation, right? They're both based on the same flawed thinking, which is a works-based salvation. So the question um, I love to discuss with with people, especially around here, where you've been kind of brought up in the church, is, um, is how is someone saved? How is someone truly saved? This passage tells us the answer to that question. What does it say? It says belief. It says, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says belief. If anyone asks you how someone becomes a Christian, it's always belief and faith. It's belief and faith. So what is belief? There are plenty of people that say they believe in Jesus. Um, on the New York City mission trip this past summer, um, we were at this one park close to, we were in Queens, or at this one park every day. And there was a, a young man who was there. He was hired by the city to um, just play games with the kids in that park. And just, he's hired by the city just to plan games for the kids in that park for the day. That's his job. And he and I began talking a few times. And by the end of the week, we had a good conversation. I said, so, hey, we're with a church group. Um, we're Christians. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I grew up in the church. And I said, so, so what do you believe? And he's like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. And, um, but you could tell the way he said it, it was kind of like he was saying it just to kind of get me to go away. And, uh, and I knew there was just something a little bit off about his statement. And I think sometimes, especially where we live, it's like you get that statement. Like, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Like, I, I believe he exists. I'm good. Leave me alone. I believe in Jesus. I even believe that what he said was true. The cross, the gospel, the whole, I believe all that. But if you point back to the first quote that I told you this morning, there, there's a point at which the gospel hasn't really hit someone in the heart yet. Like, it's just intellectual. It's just a belief in the mind, not really a belief in the heart yet. And it's not enough just to believe in the facts. It's not enough to just to say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God, or I believe Jesus died on the cross. It's not enough just to say, I believe that happened in history. But the question is, are you personally trusting him to save you? Is your faith personal? Have you put your faith and trust in his finished work 
for you on the cross. And if someone does not put their faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross, this verse says they perish. What does that mean? This is not just physical death. This verse is talking about this is eternal death in hell separated from God. If we don't put our personal faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross, we spend eternity separated from him in hell. That's what happens to us if we die in that state. Now, I know whenever we talk about faith and belief, um, we've got to be careful because some of us can think of, okay, so I got it. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He did his part, and the faith, that's my part. So Jesus gets credit for the cross thing. I get credit for the faith thing. But the problem with that is Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 actually speaks against that pretty clearly. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This verse is clear that you and I can't even take credit for the faith. We can't look at faith and say, okay, the faith is my part, and Jesus did his part on the cross. The faith is my deal. I get credit for my faith. This means that the whole package is a gift. This means that, like, the whole package of salvation is a gift from God to us. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God to us. Because think about this. If it wasn't a gift, then we would have the right to boast, if it wasn't a gift from him to us, even the ability to believe, then you and I would have the ability and the right to boast in ourselves. And this verse says, so that no one can boast, so the entire package must be a gift from him to us. One question I get from people sometimes, okay, so what about this whole um, you know, salvation prayer that everyone talks about? Like when I grew up in a Baptist church where um, every service and every sermon was at the end was a time when you can come forward and, and pray the prayer of salvation and become a Christian. And I'm not going to say that's always a bad thing to do, but I want to explain this to you this morning very clearly, the role that that kind of prayer should play in our lives or should not play in our lives. And I'll explain this to you. There's a right way and a wrong way to view the salvation prayer. The wrong way is seeing that prayer as a magic formula that gets me salvation. Okay, if I just say these words, then I'm going to be a Christian. Um, a couple years ago, I was at our, our church's men's conference, and there was a man who stood before the, um, the men, and he was giving his testimony. And this line he used really concerned me. He said the phrase, both of my kids prayed to receive Christ when they were little, so I know they're Christians, but right now, they just aren't living like it. And I actually knew who his kids were, and I was going, I'm not so sure I would want to give my kids a false assurance of salvation. I'm not sure I'd do that if I was in his shoes. And it got me thinking about how many of us fall into the same trap. We think that this little prayer is like a formula to recite when you're a kid, and if you say it, then you're good. You're saved. No one can take that away now, right? No matter what you do after that is, is not going to change your salvation status. But the Bible is real clear, though, that there are some people, there are plenty of people, who think they're believers that really 
aren't believers. And so the right way to view the salvation prayer is to see it as an expression of your faith and belief. I say, I say this, that you're, you are saved by faith and belief. You are not saved by reciting some prayer, but that prayer can be an expression of that faith and belief. I get this from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Go ahead and turn there, Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10. It says in verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So again, how is someone saved according to this passage? You're saved through belief and faith. What are the things someone has to believe in order to be a Christian? You'd be amazed at how many people I talk to um, when I do like a baptism interview and I say, so what does it mean to be a Christian or how does someone become a Christian? And I just get blank stares. So I'm trying to make sure I cover this very clearly this morning so you know how it is that someone comes to know Christ and what someone needs to believe in order to be a Christian. I don't have this on the screen, but just kind of listen and you can write it down if you want to. But someone needs to believe these things in order to be a Christian. Number one, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is deity, he's divine. Number two, that God is perfect and holy. Number three, that you and I fall short of his holiness, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Number four, that because of our sin, we are owed death, physical and spiritual death, Romans 6, 23. We have to believe that, number five, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And the last one, According to this passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. This passage says we must believe in the resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. And again, if you're a skeptic this morning and don't believe that really happened, I'll just remind you that whatever it is you choose to believe about the world also requires great faith, just like my faith that Jesus really was resurrected. This passage also says that someone has to believe in the heart. What's it mean to believe in the heart? What does that mean? This means to truly believe it. It means to believe it in such a way that it actually affects the way that you live. Believe it not just intellectually, but believe it in your heart where it affects how you live your life. So what about this confession with the mouth? Because it looks like what it's saying here is that you've got to confess with the mouth Maybe that's the salvation prayer they're talking about. Um, Does this verse mean that we have to say the salvation prayer in order to be saved? And I would say it to you this way. No, I don't think you have to recite that little prayer in order to be a Christian. But I will tell you this, according to this passage, what is in the heart will eventually come out of the mouth. And so it's okay to pray that prayer as long as we know we are saved by faith and belief And that prayer is an expression of that belief. I use the analogy of of wedding vows. Um, I was married about, what, 11 years ago? It's hard to believe that's been that long, but 11 years ago I was married. And my wife and I, we decided, my fiancé at the time, we decided that um, we love each other, we want to commit our lives to each other, and so we decided to have a wedding and get married. Now, when she and I spoke our vows... 
Is there some like magical thing about the vows themselves that makes us married? No, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a public expression of our love and commitment for each other. And we say the words because it expresses what's already in here. And this is kind of how I see the salvation prayer, is that if you truly believe in your heart, what I just read to you, the things you have to believe in order to be a Christian, then it is fine and good to express that with your mouth through a prayer like that. But it doesn't stop there. It also means to confess it throughout your life, to keep on confessing it, not in order to stay saved. You can't lose your salvation but just because you love him, you're in a relationship with him, and you're going to confess your devotion to him throughout your life. It's an expression of that faith and belief. So once you and I are, are saved, um, we don't just sit idle. We don't just sit waiting for um, heaven. Turn, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 10 as we wrap up. Ephesians 2.10. Paul says this, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This verse is a reminder that um, good works don't earn us salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. They come after salvation. Matt Chandler, he said it this way. He said, we don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. But I want to remind you that, on the other hand, these good works are not optional. They're simply the fruit of being rooted and grounded in Christ. And so if an apple tree is planted in the ground, it's going to produce fruit. If you and I are planted and grounded in Christ, we're going to produce good works. It's going to affect our lives. That's just what's going to happen. If someone says, Okay, now that I have forgiveness, I'm just going to live however I want. I'll go back to the marriage analogy. This would be like choosing to marry someone, but then not moving in with them, not living their life with them. That would make no sense to anyone, right? Well, you're not really, how can you, you're not really married to them, are you? And so when you think of salvation in these terms, it would be like, okay, I prayed that prayer I say I'm a Christian, but I'm choosing to live apart from Jesus Christ. I'm choosing to disobey him intentionally and willfully, and we live apart from Christ. I want to take you back to the first quote we started with by Tim Keller. He says, before the gospel hits the heart, it is possible to have a merely intellectual or behavioral Christianity in which Christian ethical principles are followed superficially. And so my question to you this morning is, has the gospel really hit you in this way? Has it hit your life in this way? And so as you guys continue discussion this morning, and as you go home this afternoon, I want you to examine yourself and ask yourself the question, okay, am I, am I just saying I believe certain things about the Bible? Is it intellectual for me? Or has the gospel really hit my heart in a way where it's caused life change like what's being described here? Because it's something I tell anyone who comes into my office to discuss baptism or something like that is I try to push them into this place. Like, let's not just talk about what you say you believe happened in history 
Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection. Let's talk about you, and has the gospel really hit you personally? And I'll tell you this. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer this morning of salvation. I want you to go home and think about it. If you're someone who says, okay, I grew up in the church, and you're, one, you're the kind of person I described earlier where we said, you grew up in the church, you think you've always been a Christian, but maybe the gospel hasn't hit your life in that way this morning or throughout your life. If that's you, then I want to challenge you to be thinking through that and, and go home and tell, confess those things to God. It's fine to pray the prayer of salvation as long as you understand that you're saved by belief and faith, not through saying some magic words. Go ahead and do your last few questions at your tables.